You are listening to a podcast from Vineyard Church of Augusta. For more information, visit vineyardaugusta.org. So last Sunday, uh, while having lunch with my parents, I was reminded uh, of a really great family story that I just hadn't thought about um, in, in quite some time. When my mom was a little girl, probably about the age Audrey is now, about 10 years old or so, her parents would take her to this really big nature reserve uh, out in East San Diego called Flynn Springs Park. And my mom loved to go there and climb these like huge magical oak trees. And in Southern California, that kind of setting is a little bit rare. So it was just this magical place. And one time they went out and they, they did this trip out there and my mom got a little acorn up off the ground and like stuck it in her pocket and, and carried it home and she planted it in like a kind of a big peach can, you know, like 48 ounces or something. She got some dirt out of somewhere and planted it in this peach can and lo and behold, like it actually, it started to grow. They saw this little sprout start peeking up through the, through the soil, and it kept growing a little bit. So my, my grandpa took her down to the edge of their property, kind of in the corner by the property line, uh, to, to plant it in the ground. And, and while they're planting it in the ground, my mom tells him about, like, why she did this. She said, because, Dad, like, I love going out and climbing those trees. Like, I want my own tree to climb. <laughs> and my grandpa, in, in like, probably like the purest Arkansas accent that I cannot fake, just said, well, darling, that's going to take like 30 years. (laughs) So disappointing. But they planted in the ground, walked away, went on about their lives. And today, what I want to talk to you guys about is, is how God's kingdom quite often comes to us in small, slow packages. Uh, This is week three in our sermon series called Non-Anxious Disciple Making. And in this series, we're asking questions about how can we take what is called the Great Commission seriously, but not anxiously? How can we we partner with the Holy Spirit uh, in a way that can lead to fruitfulness and joyous experience when we just say yes to living the good news of Jesus in our everyday lives around other people? Now, here's how Matthew tells this scene of Jesus passing on what we now call the Great Commission to his disciples. He's passing on the baton of the gospel to them. Matthew writes, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, there's a whole sermon right there that I won't give, but I'll just say, This is for both worshipers and doubters. So I think that just kind of like covers the bases in the room. Is that all right? What we're heading into today is for everyone. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even till the very end of the age. Amen. I've I've titled today's sermon, The Way the Kingdom Comes. 
the way the kingdom comes. And we're gonna look at, we're gonna look at two super short yet powerful parables. By short, I mean one of them gets two verses and the, the other one just gets one verse. But there's a whole lot going on in them that they illustrate how it is that the kingdom comes into the world and how it comes into our own lives and the lives of those around us. So, but before we read those parables, would you guys pray with me? Jesus, we present ourselves to you this morning just as we are. We thank you that your presence is already here in our midst, God, even as we have welcomed one another and we have worshiped and we have prayed we, we have sensed your presence here. We thank you for your scriptures, that, that there is just endless mystery in them, endless wonder, and that you always have this ability to open our eyes to see things we've never seen and hear things we've never heard and think thoughts we've never thought, and you form us into people we've never been. So we just ask you to do more of that in these next few moments here. Lord, give us ears to hear. I pray that your voice would speak much more loudly than my own today. Amen. So here we go. If you want to open up your Bibles, you can, or you can look at the screens. Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. He told them still another parable, I would add with the same point. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. Now, I just want to point out three Um, kind of features of these parables that are really important to identify. And the first is this, is that the stand-ins for God are a gardener, a man, and a baker, a woman. Now, and and I'll just say this across the board, a a helpful place to begin with any of Jesus's parables is to ask, like, who is the God figure, right? Or perhaps sometimes who is the Christ figure? There's oftentimes he is meant to be the one in there. Now, let me just point out here that in both of these cases, the picture that Jesus is painting is of a hard worker. I don't know if we ever think of God as a hard worker, right? We read like in the, in the first six days, he created heaven and earth and then he rested, you know? Well, he's not still resting. God is a hard worker. He's, it's a picture of someone doing this good old, get your hands dirty, back-breaking work. Like God, God is no slouch. And, and this may be most obvious to us with the gardener. If you've ever done gardening, this is the reason I don't like gardening. It might not, it might not be as obvious with the baker, though. Um, but I want to read you guys a quote. Uh, this is from a book called Kingdom Grace Judgment by Robert Farrar Capen. It, it is an utterly fantastic book, particularly if you're looking for something that kind of has some, some unique takes on the parables, and it's fresh and it's energizing. It's, it's a fabulous read. He writes this specifically about the parable of the yeast. He says, let it simply be noted in passing that the surrogate for God in this parable is a woman. Set that down along with Jesus calling himself a mother hen. Indeed, the woman presented here by Jesus seems to possess in fullest possible measure both masculinity and femininity. 
It may be stereotypically female work she's pictured as doing, but she does it with more than typical male energy. This is no slip of a girl making two tiny loaves for her husband's pleasure. This is a baker, folks. Three measures, which some translations call that three measures, is a bushel of flour for crying out loud. That's 128 cups. That's 16 five-pound bags. And when you get done putting in the 42 or so cups of water you need to make it to come together, you've got a little over 101 pounds of dough on your hands. This is good news. God is hard at work. He is always already interested and active in your life and in the lives of every single person that you encounter. The second aspect of these parables I want to point out, and we'll do this one quick because we're going to revisit it in a moment, is that the metaphors for the kingdom, that is how God goes about doing his work, are a seed and yeast. There's these, these two just natural elements that illustrate the supernatural activity of God. So put a pin in that. The third aspect of these parables that's important to note is that the soil and the flower right, into which the seed and the yeast are added, represent the whole world. Everything, everywhere, everybody, every time. This includes us as individual disciples of Jesus. It includes us, if we're in the room this morning, who are not yet disciples of Jesus. It includes everyone that you know that follows him. It includes everyone that you know that might be semi-interested in him. It includes everyone that you know that thinks they want nothing to do with Jesus. There's seeds and yeast being planted in the ground and mixed into the dough. And it's, it's important to note, I think, that before we move much farther and as we continue in the series to talk about non-anxious disciple-making, we gotta remember that before we go and make disciples, that we are continually being made into disciples. We don't arrive at some point. It's like, oh, I'm made. I've got this down. I've got it figured out. Now let me go show other people how to do it. Those usually make the worst disciple makers. <laughs> In a way, the seeds of the kingdom are being constantly sown into our lives by the gardener. There's a very real way in which the baker is regularly adding yeast into the raw flour of our lives. Thanks be to God. So here's the big picture, right, that these parables are painting, I think. The, this, the great gardener baker is hard at work. And this hard work has already begun. He or she is not waiting around for the hired hands to come in and do the work. The seeds are already planted in the ground, and even now we're beginning to take root. The yeast is already mixed into the flour and water and is working its magical chemistry of raising the dough. So again, I've called this sermon The Way the Kingdom Comes, which then begs the question, well, how does the kingdom come? This is a question we're trying to answer. How then, Jesus, does the kingdom come? I'm just gonna suggest two things this morning. I cut out two other ones. I'm, I'm writing them real short little posts on my blog. If you go to raj.blog, I posted one this morning and I'll post the other one tomorrow if you're interested. Um, they're not as encouraging as these two. Um, well, for those with ears to hear, right? The way the kingdom comes is in smallness and slowness. The way the kingdom comes is in smallness 
and slowness. And we, we tend to shy away from such things. Like maybe even now you kind of notice some resistance. Like, no, God, I want you to come big. Like you're God for crying out loud. I want you to come fast. Even as I say these, I, to be honest, like I notice a little resistance in myself. Like I wish I had a different sermon to preach, but this is not what Jesus said. So we're going with it. These small and slow things are the raw ingredients of the kingdom of God. Smallness, these seeds specifically mentioned here are mustard seeds. Now, they are not by any means literally the smallest seeds in the world, but they certainly rank up there, and they were among the smallest seeds known in the world at that time. And the, the yeast, the yeast is microscopically small. Have you ever used yeast? Anybody in here ever like baked anything, right? I mean, it's like powder, you know? It's incredibly fine. Yet both of these accomplish huge things that profoundly transform the environment around them. Nothing is the same once they show up. And slowness, both of the way that these things work, the seed and the yeast, is they work very, very slowly. You can't microwave these processes. Like, they're so slow that their activity is like nearly imperceptible. It can look and appear as though nothing at all is happening. Yet the kingdom, I think Jesus points out, has a power all its own that doesn't need to be helped and can't be hurried. Uh, when I, I, I've, made, I've made cinnamon rolls all of one time in my life from scratch. And, and I went and I bought some yeast. I followed the instructions. And I was like, how is this tiny little stuff even going to work? But it did. My mom took this little seed, planted it in a peach can, never really watered it or anything, and it started sprouting. The kingdom comes in smallness and slowness. And as we think about being makers of other disciples of Jesus... What I want to say to you today is that the way the kingdom comes is the way we go. The way the kingdom comes has to be the way that we go. The way the kingdom comes and makes disciples is the way we go and make disciples. If, if we are going out to do this in some kind of bigger is better paradigm, if we're going at a hurried pace, then perhaps we're out of step a bit with the gardener baker. He's not at all averse to using smallness and slowness for big long-term purposes. Which then begs a further question to me, which is, well, then how can we keep in step with this small, slow kingdom coming? How do we keep in step with the small, slow kingdom coming? Two thoughts. First, well, Back up a second. Before I say these two things, two caveats. One, these might both feel like very passive things. They might feel like very passive activities, but they're not. They begin as very internal activities, but again, small internal things can transform environments. Second thing is, is both of these, I think, are active resistance against anxiety. 
That if you're feeling anxiety, probably about anything, specifically though, when we talk about like evangelism, sharing the gospel with people, making disciples, if you feel anxiety, this is like the active antidote against that, I think. And the first thing is trust. First thing we do is we just trust. Like the gardener and the baker, we have to trust that the seed and the yeast have power all their own. It's, it's not one of these situations where it's like batteries not included. They're already gonna do it. We trust that the seed and the yeast are working even when we can't see it, that there is life in the very DNA that was placed there by the creator which will not be stopped. You know, the gardener doesn't lose sleep at night fretting over whether or not the seed is working. He doesn't go out the next morning and dig it up to see. The baker isn't standing over the counter like wringing her hands like, oh gosh, is the yeast doing it? I don't know what's gonna happen. We're gonna starve. They do their thing. They let the seed and the yeast do their thing and they walk away and they come back later. They trust the inherent energy of life. Moving out of the realm of metaphor, trust that the kingdom of God is already taking root and and is already lightening our own lives and the, the lives of those around us. Trust that. And that really he's doing this in the whole world, the whole batch of dough, the whole field of God is sown. You know, I think my observation is, is that a whole lot of our Christian activity, and I'm in, I'm in this boat, that much of our Christian activity, not least of which includes evangelism and making disciples, is fueled by our own anxiety. And it's fueled by our own anxiety, which comes from a misguided belief that if we are not acting, then God is not acting. Or if, if I am not busy, then God is not busy. Now, we would never say this out loud, right? Only one person said that's right. And that was Robin. (laughs) But we wouldn't admit this out loud. But our actions tell a different story oftentimes. I've certainly been guilty of this. What we do, how much we try to cram into our calendars, and the manner in which we go about doing these things oftentimes tells a whole different story that we're so very anxious. But Jesus would say, no, 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 no. Not needed, not true. The good news is that the farmer has already planted the seed and the baker has already mixed in the yeast. Trust that that little acorn in your peach can wants to grow. Trust that that little bit of yeast that you mixed in with the the milk at the right temperature that you're hoping is gonna make cinnamon rolls, trust that it's doing its job. When it it comes to those around us, right? If you were to think right now, who is someone in my life that I really wish would follow Jesus? I want them to meet Jesus. He would completely transform their lives. When we think about those people, let's ask ourselves, do I really trust that the kingdom of God is already present and active? Do I really trust that? And maybe sometimes, like, can I perceive it? Can, can I see little sprouts coming through the soil? 
Can I, get, can I get quiet enough and lean close enough to like hear the yeast bubbling? Or even if I can't, even if I can't identify anything at all, can I just simply trust the gardener baker that something good is happening? We have to trust. Now, once we settle this issue of trust and we lean into trust, the second thing that we need to do in response to the kingdom is have patience. We need trust. We need patience. And patience is a huge challenge in our culture. Like, I'm preaching to the crowd here. You guys know this. You know yourselves. You know what terrible people you are. Like, <laughs> like what do we want? What do we want? Results. When do we want them? Yesterday. Like, don't we? Like, everything in our lives is on demand and moving at light speed. And if we're not, we're like, what's wrong with the Wi-Fi? Somebody call WOW right now. We're not having this. Switching carriers. So I have a quote to show you, and I'm going to show you this. This is a photo. This is from my bulletin board back in my office. I read this quote by Eugene Peterson, and it, it stabbed me in the heart so badly that I was like, Audrey, I need you to make me something beautiful so that I can see this, and there's like beauty that goes with it. So Audrey made me this. Our compulsive timetables collide with God's leisurely providence. Dang it, Eugene Peterson. Our compulsive timetables collide with God's leisurely providence, at which point all of my compulsive timetables got really angry. Life in God's kingdom is slow. It just is. If my life is hurried, if I do not function within sustainable rhythms, if I am impatient with God's working in my life or in the lives of other people, then perhaps I'm playing by the rules of a different kingdom. So guys, slow down. Be patient. In making disciples of other people, stick with people for the long haul. Don't rush it. Don't despair. Rebuff discouragement. Resist the temptation to overfunction. Resist the temptation to try to interfere with the kingdom to make it work faster than God's spirit is actually working in someone's life. Just be patient. Back to my mom's oak tree project. As I said, they planted the little seedling down in the corner of the property. Even there, it began to grow. My mom moved away, got married. My grandparents sold the house to them, and, and that's the same house that I grew up in my whole life. The tree was still growing there. I was barely aware of it. I had no idea, because kids. We later sold that house to my aunt and her husband. But then a few years ago, we went back. And this oak tree, in the meantime, continued to grow and grow and grow and grow. So persistently, in fact, that about 60 years later, my mom found herself sitting beneath that oak tree with two of her grandchildren, which is decidedly way more awesome than climbing it. But it took 60 years, not 30, like my grandpa said. He did not know what he was talking about. Another really highly recommended book um, is called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. 
which I just give a gold star for the name in and of itself, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. The main point of this book is to try to illustrate that the, the incredible explosion of the early church in the first three centuries after Jesus was not due to any sort of like mission program. There was no like intentional evangelistic effort. They then there wasn't because there was like training programs that taught people like how to share their faith with people and how to close the deal in four easy questions or whatever, right? All the things we come up with. The reason that the early church exploded in the first 300 years was because of patience. Because the Christians were like obnoxiously patient people. The earliest Christians valued and they intentionally taught patience to their disciples. They created like a culture of patience. Kreider notes that that in the first 300 years, there are no notable survived writings about evangelism. The single most explosive time in the expansion of the gospel and there was no writings about evangelism, nobody was talking about it, at least not to like a huge degree. But there were many notable writings on the value of patience. That's what they were writing about. In his book, Kreider writes this, kind of summing it up. Christians are not impatient. To which we would say, you don't know us. (laughs) Whatever. They entrust all things, including their own lives and the salvation of all people to the God who is patiently making all things new. I want that to be true of me. I want that to be true of us. As I meditated on this this week, I was suddenly reminded of this iconic passage from Isaiah 61. Let me just read this to you. This is the one that Jesus himself stood up and read in the synagogue, if you remember the story. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness. They will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. It strikes me, guys, like someone doesn't become an oak of righteousness overnight. It takes decades, decades of trust and patience. It takes me decades of trust and patience as I am being made a disciple of Jesus. It takes decades of trust and patience in everybody around me for me to become an oak of righteousness. The way the kingdom comes is the way we go. Let me suggest that we, like Jesus, are not in the business of making converts, but of making disciples. 
And that's the work that takes a lifetime. Early church father Cyprian wrote this. Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than by boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. We do not speak great things, but we live them. Church, let us live great lives of trust and patience. In the first 300 years, the world looked at them and said, we need that kind of patience. I would suggest that, that 2023 is no different. It needs a world of Christians that doesn't just speak great things, but lives great things. As we live lives of great trust and patience, then almost without trying, we will find ourselves walking alongside the gardener through his fields, tending the tender shoots, watering, weeding, mulching, protecting them from damage and disease, pruning and supporting as needed, and rejoicing with him as the birds and the bees and the butterflies find sanctuary in his holy habitat. And we will find ourselves standing beside the baker at her counter, kneading the dough, welcoming the necessary resistance of the dough as it forms the gluten that is needed to hold the loaf structure together helping the loaf endure the heat just long enough to be baked but not burned and rejoicing with her as that bread is broken and passed around the table, filling the bellies of all her hungry children. And if that's what we want to do, then where might we mature our patience and our trust? Where can we learn patience and trust? How are they formed in us? I just want to suggest that much like the early church, just got one simple suggestion, is that is we do that in relationship with one another. This is not an intellectual exercise. I made a couple of good book suggestions. Neither of them are going to teach you trust or patience. Only other people will do that. There's only like a couple uncomfortable chuckles at that one. People are like, don't look, don't make eye contact. <laughs> There's nothing like other humans to test your patience, especially when you're trying to live like together or share your souls with one another, follow Jesus together. And this is the power of small groups. As Robin mentioned today, small groups are open for the fall and I've just got two simple questions for you. If the spirit is stirring in your heart today and you want to partner with this process of the gardener and the baker in your life and in the lives of others around you, two simple questions. One, which group will you join? Just go to vineyardaugusta.org groups. You can read about them all. You can visit our small groups table over here. You can see them on the wall. You can, they've got some Kindles over there and you can read about them and sign up there. But ask the Lord to guide you. Which one will you join? 
Like, don't make the question, am I going to join a group? That's not how I phrased it. You can make up your own question for yourself if you want. Mine is, which one are you going to join? And then second, who will you invite to Alpha? And I want to highlight that one specifically, especially in this series, because as we continue to talk about non-anxious disciple-making, I, I know of no better opportunity than Alpha. Alpha already has trust and patience baked into it. Your people that you know that are far from Jesus, they can come with their own doubts, their own questions, their own stories, and find a safe place to explore that. As we head into a time of response to God in worship, um, I wanna invite you guys to join with me in just praying a prayer of blessing over our small group leaders and apprentices. So small group leaders and apprentices in the room, stand up where you are. Go ahead and stand up. The rest of you can clap, sure. We love you guys. If you're leading a group, apprenticing a group, yeah, you count. Unless you just quit as my apprentices. My own apprentice is like, I don't know. I just heard this sermon and made me think I don't want to do that anymore. And let me just invite you guys. Um, there's a bunch of our small group leaders and apprentices who I know aren't here. Pray for them too. Um, if you're near them, stretch out your hand. If you want to lay hands on them, if we're close enough, that's cool. Otherwise, would you guys stretch out your hands and we just want to bless these folks as they serve and lead our church. I came across this prayer this week. It's, it's, a, it's a prayer modeled after Psalm 134. And, and it's called a prayer for those in ministry. And it doesn't specifically mention small group leaders or apprentices. I'm gonna add that in. Lord God, I pray for all who live to shepherd and serve your people. All overseers, deacons, elders, priests, rectors, pastors, ministers, small group leaders and apprentices. May they love you with a whole heart and undivided will. May they love your church well, their families well, their friends well, and so honor you. Be near to them, Lord. Bless the work of their hands. In your holy name I pray. Amen.